Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Gajin Girl. She's a Bronx leftist, writer, and activist. On the show, we discuss philosophy, Bronx politics, U.S. politics, and the genocide in Gaza. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. to be here. All right. So, I am MC Squared. Go ahead and say your name for us, because I'm sure I butchered it. It's not that difficult, but I'm, you know, making it harder no. than it has to be. Go ahead. That's that's pretty good. It's it's Gaijin Girl. And that stands for, let's hear it. That stands for, it's, it's a Japanese term, slightly derogatory, but that's okay, for foreigner. Okay. And uh, just so you know why, um, I... Am a huge sushi fan. Uh, used to be back in the day, you would find me in J Town or Chinatown every single weekend in New York. So I decided to call myself what I am, <laughs> and that's that's where my handle came from. You can easily bribe me with sushi. Let's put it that way. How long have you been a New Yorker? Oh my gosh. Um, both my parents were born in New York. Uh, the family traveled around, but most recently I've been here since the nineties. So I, I remember reading, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I read some of his stuff before I kind of got deep into philosophy and my political studies, but I remember he had mentioned crime in New York in the nineties, was <laughs> it the late eighties, early nineties and uh, good old mayor Giuliani and, uh, didn't you have some like broken glass theory of crime? Like, oh, you know, if you if you're gonna break a window, then you know uh, people are gonna k- kill people or something like that. So I guess then they uh, then they really like um, was there something going on there where they really like kind of went really hard on crime and stopped uh, I don't know subway fare jumpers and broken glass. I don't know. Is there anything? <laughs> that's just what. That's what uh, jogged my memory when we we're talking about. If you want to talk about some New York politics, you remember any of that stuff—the broken glass, Giuliani theory of yeah. crime. Yeah, the the broken glass theory of crime. Now, mind you, I'm I'm pretty rusty at this point. Uh, I actually have a master's in criminal justice, so this was this was something that was my thing for a while. Um, basically, the concept is: oh, if you allow certain things to deteriorate in the neighborhood. 
then other things are going to deteriorate and we have to stop them all now. And of course, the problem with that is he was criminalizing things which didn't need to be criminalized. And it was basically just siphoning an entire generation for no reason into the prison industrial system. Um, as part of the, uh, basically what, you know, Biden's Jim Crow Joe did with his uh, crime bill. Um, and uh, I think probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow book. It's one, It's an absolutely great um, and very readable analysis of what the, the, the new criminal justice system is in and how biased it is racially. So not only is it a budget drain, but it's also manifestly unjust. Yeah, and then the, the, the crime bill, I think Biden was the architect, uh, locking up a disproportionate number of blacks and minorities uh, into the mass incarceration system. So, you know, whatever, um, you know, people, whatever group of people, you know, they can't lock up, you know, the other alternative would be to kind of force them into urban slums uh, with just, you know, mm -hmm. kind of an endless cycle of poverty and violence. Um, the majority of crime is uh, poor people committing crimes against others. So, you know, what you kind of have is, you know, the gentrification of some neighborhoods and a lot of urban slums in others. And then, of course, um, you know, combated or, you know, worsened the problem, worsening with, you know, cutting, um, you know, health care, cutting public education, mm -hmm. public transportation. Um, you know, when you have subway fares, that is a regressive tax because millionaires typically don't mm -hmm. take the subway. So any, you know, any uh, fee for public transportation, that's a regressive tax. So instead of, you know, having free public transportation, free subways, and that sort of thing, you're pretty much specifically taxing the poor. So, you know, I think times are doing very well for Wall Street bankers and, uh, you know, uh, stockbrokers and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the taxes on those people, you know, continued, I think it's at or near all-time low, corporate taxes and, and uh, you know, the highest um, income uh, taxes, but yet, uh, you know, public services are being cut across the board, but they're not called, um, you know, they're not called uh, tax cuts. You know, they're just called like reduced funding for public education or, you know, reduced funding for public uh, transportation or, or healthcare. I mean, we don't even have a functioning healthcare system. So, you know, mm. it's, it's times are good for, for people making a lot of money, but, you know, maybe living in, and I've lived in the, in the uh, East coast, you know, in, in some big cities and, you know, the poverty is striking. I mean, the, the poverty in some of these cities, Philadelphia, Baltimore, where I've lived, I haven't traveled to, you know, outside the United States much, but, uh, you know, I, they're starting to um, compare really, really uh, pretty closely with, you know, some some uh, urban slums in the third world, you know. So I guess mm -hmm. infrastructure and um, it's kind of just declining. <laughs> I have a printout of, you know, infrastructure. I think it's like a C minus grade for buses, roads, bridges. I think there's like tens of thousands of bridges that are, near structural um, failure rates and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like just generally though, just urban city slums, mass incarceration, living in the big city, uh, just a cycle of, you know, violence. And uh, that's the other thing though too, is like 
crime is pretty stable, I guess, over the last 20 or 30 years, although perception of crime is through the roof. And again, the majority of crime is, you know, poor people committing crimes uh, against other poor people, you know, and 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 I guess we have like the breakdown of social safety nets of the welfare state. So, you know, the people that, again, can't uh, get support, you know, they're either stuck in urban slums in the city and, and, and maybe a lifetime and generations of poverty or they're locked up mass incarceration, but we don't have, you know, public health care. We don't have mental health, safety nets, welfare. You know, these systems are just being dismantled and crumbled, not just from the right, but the left as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not forget. Oh gosh, you touched on a lot of things. I mean, um, let's not forget uh, what some of the things are that are being criminalized. Uh, if you recall on Eric Garner, he was selling Lucy's. I can't breathe, right? That was, uh, I can't, I can't breathe. The first, the first, I can't breathe that was publicized. He was just selling Lucy cigarettes because that was a way to make some money. And he was choked to death by the NYPD for it. Now, somebody on wall street doesn't have to do that to survive. And uh, and along those lines, speaking of disparity, uh, going back to Jim Crow Joe and his crime bill for a second here, um, one of the big things he did with that was uh, making a distinction between uh, selling crack cocaine and regular cocaine. And all of a sudden, crack cocaine was so much worse and you had to have a worse sentence. And of course, Crack, because it was cheaper, was being sold in urban slums. You take the wolves, wolves of Wall Street, they're not using that. And also, if anyone's going to get caught, it's going to be the people on the street. The people who are taking bumps in bathrooms and boardrooms are not. So you have the snowballing effect, because you have... Anyone in in an urban area who's like locked up for something low level like that, who then you have, say, either the mom or the dad and the family is suddenly incarcerated, you're making the family itself that much more poor and that much more desperate to look for income in other ways. It's... Kids, you know, it's a never-ending cycle. If your if your parents are, you know, one of your parents or both of your parents are uh, in in prison, I mean, what kind of outcome do you think you're going to have? I and mean, what kind of safety nets are available? Um, poverty, um, homelessness mm-hmm. among you know uh, children is <laughs> increasing. Um, yeah, we just don't have like adequate safety nets. Public education is crumbling. So yeah, I mean, again, kind of back to that. Uh, that cycle of poverty and and, and desperation. And, uh, you know, we had this, I mean, the Jim, what Jim Crow South and with the laws, what the Jim Crow laws did was basically criminalize black life. So, you know, slavery was abolished, but only, um, you know, only in, I guess the form of chattel slavery, what they did was, you know, chain gangs uh, in the South criminalizing black life so that they had, uh, uh, they had, you know, a labor force, um, you know, forced Mm -hmm. prison, labor force, um, and, and then, you know, so I think like had sharecroppers. So, um, you know, I guess things I've read about reconstruction is that's basically returning, you know, the, the slaves were freed only for a brief period of time, um, or the slaves were freed, I guess. But I mean, 
in principle, it was it, it was not long lasting because you know the Jim Crow South, uh, mass incarceration, criminalizing black life. I think it was generations, not until um, World War II, in the uh, state capitalist system, and um, you know essentially you know at a wartime economy near full employment. That was the only time you know that finally got some blacks out of poverty, got some decent jobs. You know, a lot of them moved um, to like Detroit and other, you know, Rust Belt cities of today, but, you know, in the 1940s with, with, with the, uh, increased production and whatnot. But I mean, it was a long time, maybe a hundred years almost where, you know, black lives, um, were, were criminalized for, you know, looking at a white woman at a, you know, at a pharmacy or at a restaurant. I mean, you know, with the segregation and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I just recently, I saw on um, Instagram, it was, uh, it was like, I mean, not much has changed. I mean, we had the Civil War, but we still kind of have those same political lines drawn between uh, the states of the South and the North, and the, you know, the racism is still there and clear. I saw it was uh, it was on Instagram. It was a um, it was like, I don't know, it was a prison warden or someone you know with a with a badge on saying that uh, you know it's, it's our, we use this prison labor force, you know, and the thing about it is we have prisoners that uh, don't cooperate. They're not good labor. And we have prisoners that do cooperate, but the problem with that is they get out you know, for good behavior. So now we, we need this prison labor force, and we're not getting it. And I'm like, this is this is the same kind of stuff just repeating itself over and over again. I mean, he's saying the silent part out loud. I mean, he doesn't even get it that he's basically saying, you know, it's, is there, he's basically asking, like, is there some way we can keep these good prisoners locked up for longer? I mean, it's, it's well, crazy, the country we live in today. I mean, not much has changed in 100-plus years, you know? And that's true across the duopoly. Um, you are familiar with the uh, the Kamala Harris bit with that? Not too familiar. Oh, um, this was back. Uh, this came to light particularly back in 2020 when she was running. What, oh, you're talking about like uh, uh, criminalizing like pop or marijuana? Like she was like well, was, about it. Yeah, she did that too. Um, but uh, when she was AG. Uh, she actually argued there was a, a initiative to release early release for good behavior for a number of prisoners, and her office actually argued overtly that no, we can't get rid of them because we need them for firefighting slave labor. Yeah, we need we need our our indentured servants to do firefighting in California. They didn't say it quite that way, but that's what they that's what they were saying. And it's 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 basically slavery is not ended. It's just been switched over to uh, the prison system. Yeah, exactly. And then wage slavery, too. Uh, I'm so I actually read some stuff on Lincoln and he actually said uh, I would uh, I would keep the union if I didn't if it meant I didn't free any slaves. I would preserve the union if, I, if that meant I freed all the slaves I would keep the union together if it meant I freed some slaves and not others. So, like, kind of looking back at Lincoln, everyone thinks, like, Lincoln's just, like, progressive and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, he no, was he very wasn't. moderate, and he did it politically. You know, I think he needed uh, to increase, you know, army uh, numbers for the North, and he knew, you know, he could probably get a little bump. Uh, and, of course, I think uh, blacks in the Union Army got paid less, of course. Um, mm. And, yeah, I think when, the, when with the Emancipation Proclamation – uh, this is all off memory. We didn't 
prepare any of the stuff. I almost I prepare stuff, but we never get to the stuff I prepare. So it's just, it's so uh, it's always right. off the cuff for the most part. But um, yeah, so slaves got nothing. They were emancipated. They got nothing. Like okay, you're free now. Go start your life. You know, no resources whatsoever. Um, which is not that much dissimilar today, where uh, you know people get maybe a few thousand dollars for being wrongfully imprisoned for decades. You know, just in, I mean, it depends on the state you're in. You know, I think maybe some of the so-called blue states you might, might be a little bit more um, generous, but uh, I, I saw like, I think someone, I want to say, I don't know, somewhere down South, somewhere in the deep South. And, mm. and they were in prison for like a couple decades and they got like a check for, I don't know, $30,000 or $90,000, something like that. Like, you know, a couple generations yeah. behind bars, go ahead and start your life. But uh, you know, when the, when the slaves were free, they got nothing, but what the, the, uh, the slave owners, they were compensated for, you know, for all the, for all the slaves, they got a check from the government. So that's how, uh, you know, that's how our system tends to work. Yeah, it definitely. So, I mean, there's so many things we could touch on so like that, you know, <laughs> at some other time. But it's that Lincoln was not the saint that he's sometimes painted to be in history. Yeah. Um, not only, I think at one point he was arguing, oh, let's like ship all the slaves back to, to Africa. I think so. Yeah, um, I think so. He, he, he also um, was the architect of one of the most, if not the most, mass executions in U.S. history. I'm not familiar. Yeah, um, it was uh, a number of Native Americans that he mass hung. Let's see, largest uh, 38 members of the Dakota tribe in Minnesota. He wasn't the good guy that they make him out to be. Yeah, I think all the, all the, all the, uh, all the, um, presidents are criminals so i'm looking here here's here's the prison rate so or this is just the total incarcerated in the united states it's over uh two million i believe in the 1980s prior to reagan becoming president it was less than five hundred thousand. so we have a significant increase in the prison population and i've read some uh, civil rights articles just about our mass incarceration system would anyone argue we're safer now than we were in 1980 you know all this time money uh, effort uh money spent on you know, resources, police, prison guards, bars, jails. Is anyone arguing we're safer now than we were in 1980? I don't think so. Uh, but yeah, some of these countries, um, China, um, they have what, uh, over a billion people. They have uh, less than 2 million people incarcerated. They are number two, though, much greater population. Brazil, 800,000. India, 500,000. Russia, um, a little bit under 500,000. So the United States off the spectrum. We don't have the world's uh, largest population, but we do have the world's largest prison population. So we are a mass incarceration state. We're the, maybe the only country in the world where we have two politicians getting on stage. We have a two-party system here, so it's not like we have many choices. Mm-hmm. But typically, you know, you'll have an election. You'll get two um, politicians going on stage arguing with a straight face at who's going to be tougher on crime. Uh, and people are like taking these politicians seriously. What does that mean exactly? Um, it's just insane. You know, what are we going to enforce the laws harder? What are we going to have, uh, you know, longer prison sentences? What are we going to have more um, capital punishment? So, you know, kind of with my um, philosophy and my favorite type of philosophy is political philosophy. I'm kind of like a radical leftist, you know, and I'm, I think that I feel like radical leftism and, and communism generally, and I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a communist, certainly not the type of communism that was practiced in the Soviet Union. I don't want to live in that kind of society. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I think people tend to confuse like basic human rights with like 
communism or leftism. So, I mean, I say like I'm pro-life, but like I'm, I'm serious about it. Like, I, I don't think we should have capital punishment, you know, I, I oh, mean, yeah. in terms of like, you know, abortion, I'm certainly in favor of I'm pro-choice. But, you know, I think we should have a much better safety net. Um, maybe we should have free um, daycare. We should have more resources, more time off for mothers and parents, um, you know, that sort of thing, like pro-life. But like, you know, actually meaning it is like we should take care of people, you know, and I think those are things that are, I find important. So I think we can kind of do that by maybe uh, cutting, you know, certainly not cutting taxes on the rich, increasing taxes on the rich, but then, you know, decreasing and maybe uh, <laughs> slowly dismantling the military industrial complex. I'm in favor of defunding the police. I'm in favor maybe in the long term of just getting rid of them completely. Maybe we just have community policing. I'm in favor of, you know, very, um, you know, less harsh criminal sentencing. So I, I kind of like the model in Norway where it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a college dorm room where you have freedom. You can walk around, you can cook mm. clean, take showers, that sort of thing. And I think their maximum sentence is like 25 years. I kind of like that. I don't like this, this like, you know, six life sentences, five life sentences, with no chance of parole. I mean, in solitary confinement, this is cruel and unusual punishment. So what do you think about just the criminal justice system, generally capital punishment, life in prison, solitary confinement, cops, uh, I'm in favor of defunding it all and maybe over time getting rid of it all. Oh, gosh. That's 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 a lot of uh, things to talk about. Long-term goal. Um, Long-term with, goal. We can't yeah. do it tomorrow. But Long-term goal. In, in general, um, I'd like well, it. You know, the, the, the obvious things, I would say, uh, you know, capital punishment is something that I've evolved on over the years. Um, in... You know, in theory, you know, if if I were looking at, say, Ted Bundy, do I have a problem with executing Ted Bundy? No, I don't. However, the the threat of murdering even a single innocent person is not worth it, in my opinion. And you have that. And and the the fact that people are being killed for things that they shouldn't be killed for either. Again, I mean, you take a Ted Bundy, you take a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, you take a a war criminal like uh, Henry Kissinger. Sure. Would I mind? Would I mind capital punishment? No, but on principle, it's not worth the risk. Yeah, I like, That's I like your, Yeah, I, I like your stance. If it. If, like, remember Emmett Till? I remember there was a movie that came out about him. It was probably some Hollywood, you know, yes. kind of silly movie. But the story is real, and it, it hits home. I mean, you know, I think he was acquitted of, you know, what happened. He was supposedly said that he um, raped a, uh, a white woman, and no, then it no, came out no, that that was all no, baloney. Oh, no, no, yeah. Emmett, Emmett Till was... Emmett Till was murdered. Yeah, he was murdered after the after that, right? But it was wrongly yeah. accused of... Uh, oh, he was... Uh, was it just? I don't think it was ever a trial. I think they basically okay. just... Just killed him. Grabbed him. Okay. But there's definitely some yeah. other, um, you know, instances of uh, people exonerated uh, after they die in the future. And I like, I like oh. that idea. Like, why, why would we want to? There is a case. There's a, uh, are you familiar with uh, Scott Peterson? I'm not. Oh, Lordy. Um, let's see. I'm not sure when that happened, whether it was the 90s or the 80s. Scott Peterson was accused of and, and convicted of murdering his, his Pregnant wife, Lacey okay. Peterson. Okay. Uh, the Innocent Project just recently That's took cool. his case. And they're finding that 
Um, the cops hid the fact that there was a burglary across the street. And that either neighbors or, or one of the burglars admit that they saw Lacey. And, they, and someone else saw her get into their van. So, I mean, think about it. I mean, everybody, I remember whenever that was, I remember everyone was like baying for Scott Peterson's head. And he spent how long in jail? What if he's innocent? Yeah, I think the standard, I mean, innocent until proven guilty. There's definitely the court of public opinion, you know, if, if something sounds heinous enough and there's um, maybe some, you know, testimony and it's like, oh, he's guilty, you know, and, and regardless of there's due process of law. Speaking of due process of law, like what about um, the Obama um, drone campaign, you know, even killing uh, Osama uh, bin Laden? Um, you know, essentially, I think it was like a group of SEALs. Uh, he was they went into Pakistan. This was a secret operation. Pakistan is a nuclear power. It's quite possible there could have been a military conflict if Pakistan knew that the secret team of SEALs were, uh, you know, in their territory. It could have been a nuclear war. Uh, but they went to Osama bin Laden's compound. Um, they He was unarmed. I think he was just there with his wife. They shot him, killed him, bullets to the head. Um, they were rescued by the team, the escape team, whatever. Uh, no, no trial, no charges, no credible charges, and his body was dumped in the ocean. So probably likely that he had some involvement with you know international terrorism, but so does the president of the United States. So does so does Benjamin Netanyahu right now. He's is carrying on carrying out uh, international terrorism as we speak. I mean, the United States is. Um, not is the leader in international terrorism. So, um, but yeah, I think I just generally, I mean, I, I think if you're going to take something seriously, like international law, courts of law, charges, uh, or, or Guantanamo Bay, the whole point that we have Guantanamo Bay is to have like a prison torture chamber that exists outside of U.S. Uh, you know, law out of U.S. doctrine so that we can kind of torture mm -hmm. and take people there, children, you know, overseas, maybe throwing stones and rocks at U.S. service members, and then we lock them up for, you know, decades, maybe no charges, and call them an international terrorist and, and potentially torture them in Guantanamo Bay. The whole reason it exists is because, you know, it's outside of the sphere of U.S. justice system, so we can do whatever we want there. It's a torture chamber without even the investigation, as, uh, you know, Chomsky might say. But, uh, yeah, I think the and, – and Reagan talking about um, – Law and order. I think he was the only president or world leader to be sanctioned by the International Court for his uh, international terrorist campaigns in Nicaragua, um, you know, in, in Latin America during the 1980s, uh, installing the Pinochet regime. I just talked about mm -hmm. uh, a couple books, uh, recommendations with Pat TDS on uh, basically the CIA and, and its, uh, you know, campaign to overthrow governments all over the world, but especially in Latin America and especially in the 1980s under the quote-unquote law and order president. But uh, yeah, I think it's something to, you know, I think it's important to take, um, you know, international or uh, take, you know, law um, seriously, but, you know, you have to, you have to have, a, so kind of in the United States, you know, the rich and powerful, there's one court of law for the rich and powerful and one for everybody else. So, you know, they can stand up and slap some penal code and say law and order, this, that, or the other thing. But, you know, what they're actually doing behind the scenes is a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, yeah. Um, let's go back to um, what, what we should have. You were talking about the, uh, the safety net. Sure. Let's, let's, let's go back and talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> um, because that's, that's, 
that's quite a, a rich topic. Sure. Um, I think we all agree, even if even if one's unless one's an anarcho-capitalist, even if one's a, a what's called a minarchist libertarian, you believe that there are certain functions of the government that are needed for society and in general uh, welfare, general health. Uh, if you're a laissez-faire libertarian, you're going to say it's the courts and the police and the military. But you accept the concept that there's a need for a public good and public services. If you accept that, then what's wrong with saying, okay, there are other things that are needed for like basic human needs? Uh, personally, I would say that those things include uh, healthcare, education, anything that's. Are you familiar with the Maslow's period? Uh, the Maslow. Yeah, yeah. Um, the period of human needs, right? Pyramid of human needs. needs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I would say anything in the first few rungs of Maslow's is is crucial. You know, you you need food. You need a place to live. You need and in a modern society, you need transportation. You need utilities. I would say the internet. I even argue the internet. The now, internet. I would one hundred percent agree. You you try get try to get along without the internet these days. I'm not saying people need a Maserati. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying they need like fashionable clothes. But I would think that if you put it out to the average person and not label it as "Oh my God, this is capitalist." Oh my God, this is socialist. People would agree, yeah, these things are kind of needed for a good building block for society. So I think it's a good time now to define some political philosophy, perhaps some terms of discourse. Uh, I think a lot of the terms in political philosophy and politics generally are propagandized. So what you have is their actual meaning, their classical meaning, uh, but you know, often how it's used is the complete opposite. So we might want to discuss libertarian. Uh, I identify myself as a socialist libertarian or sometimes as an anarcho-syndicalist or maybe a socialist anarchist. I mean, again, I basically I, I'm fearful of authoritarian government, so I'm like kind of the left Marxist. You know, for example, like you know, a lot of the Marxists were uh, in favor of the state, um, you know, kind of having this uh, proletariat uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, if you will. While I'm a bit farther left than that, I, I, I kind of, um, I would like, you know, kind of loosely affiliated communities, hopefully no central government. Eventually, long-term view would be like a classless, stateless society. So I don't consider myself a Marxist, although I do like some of the things that he talked about. There is a very rich anarchist tradition, maybe going, you know, far back with like some names like Gramsci, um, Peter Kropotkin, Mikhail Bakunin, um, who talked about the red bureaucracy. He foresaw the Soviet Union and what it became. So I'm actually doing some of these writings right now as I do some kind of independent study for some of my other podcasts. I do some solo pods uh, as well. And unfortunately, there's this libertarian branch in the United States, which is kind of this like hyper capitalist, you know, I got mine, screw everybody else, you know. Basically, want you know, get your Ayn Rand, get your Milton and Friedman, your uh, Hayek economics books out. Um, but basically, you know, basically, basically, you know, 
businesses dominate society. No public education, private education only. You know, corporations get rid of the government. Of course, we're still going to have like police and military. Maybe, maybe they're private security forces. That would be a hellscape that I wouldn't want to uh, live in. Uh, instead of public mm. transportation and public roads, you might have toll roads, and uh, if you can afford them, you know you can might maybe be able to drive down a nice highway. If you can't, maybe you'll uh, drive down a dirt road and get stuck in a rut somewhere. But it's just kind of like this hyper capitalist, social Darwinist, you know, kind of dystopian uh, capitalist hellscape that I wouldn't want to live or be anywhere near. It has really nothing to do with classical liberal philosophies, um, even classical conservatism, which I kind of consider myself a classical conservative as, as I at least take things like democracy, liberty, justice. I think I take these things seriously, but uh, socialism, uh, a lot of people uh, kind of throw socialism as a buzzword or scare word here in the United States. I just think of it as, you know, taking care of people, communities, um, public works projects, public institutions. And I also think that um, socialism has basically workers um, have a say in in the workplace. So I I consider myself an anarcho-syndicalist because I am in favor of democratically structured societies, hopefully small decentralized states, maybe no nation states. Maybe we should get rid of these standing armies as well, the militarized police force. But I would like society structured around democratically organized workplaces. So that's why I find myself an anarcho-syndicalist, co-ops, that sort of thing, where we're not you know, dominated by corporations, where we have this hierarchy, this board of directors and the CEO, and everyone else you know, falls in line and takes orders, but more of a democratic workplace owned and operated workers controlling the means of production, you know, one, one vote, one person, that sort of thing. So those are maybe some briefly... Uh, defined terms the way I see it, socialism, libertarianism, socialist, anarchism, all those sorts of terms, even through in conservative and liberal. So that's kind of my general brief description and understanding of those terms. And again, I think they're highly propagandized and they're usually used in political discourse to attack your opponent. What say you about those terms, especially libertarianism? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think labels are a danger and labels are a distortion. Um, you can argue too many times. I like to bring up that Orwell, everybody knows Orwell from 1984 um, and Big Brother. I think Orwell's, the, the, the thing that he said that was so important, so crucial, was his understanding of how language can be used to control thought and the way that you you know and they have it you know he in 1984 he's got newspeak and you know innocent you know uh, war is peace and you know, ignorance is strength and blah 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 and he does this in in um animal farm too and my point for bringing that up is that labels when they're improperly defined are pure propaganda that you you really have to whatever you're talking about you have to drill down to the core premises of what you're arguing for so you, you know it's like just to throw out capitalism or communism or socialism isn't really very informative and it can be more of a propagandistic pr term than anything else so you got to sit down and say okay what is your primary goal? 
for, you know, for uh, politics. Uh, if you're talking about a libertarian, if you're talking about a socialist in most cases, you you might say, hey, you know, welfare, human welfare is the goal. Then you can go around and you can look at, okay, what economics makes sense, what actually is true, what promotes that. And even though you might want call one thing capitalism and you might call one thing socialism, you can argue as to whether which one's better. But you got to agree that, okay, this is what we're trying to reach. Um, libertarianism, you've got, uh, you know, in the U.S., libertarianism has been, like, limited to this extremely right-wing, free, quote-unquote, free market system where it's unfettered capitalism, no regulation. And that is a strictly Western concept, from what I understand. And uh, I would personally call myself a left libertarian if I was going to put a label on myself. Yeah, I think it's American, uh, too. I think I think in, in Europe... It's American, I, yes. Yeah, I think it's strictly American. This is some hyper-unfettered capitalistic term where, yeah, there's no, there's no government, there's no regulations, there's no nothing, but yet somehow we still have this military industrial complex like if you ever ask a, a libertarian a lot of them are in favor of the military industrial complex police you know those sorts yes. of um you know uh, that's the night watch from the state or, yeah, the, 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 yeah. The, the, the violent you know extension of the state the the the, the, the function of the state that uh, you know is, is basically able to carry out violence uh, in, I guess, in support of the agenda of the ruling class. You know, so that's the first thing that I would uh, abolish and curb. Um, but yeah, it seems like um, I mean, not all libertarians, but I've, I've had one on, uh, and most of them are. I would describe them as like uh, American. I got mine. I got mine. Screw everybody else. They seem to be very socially um, progressive and, and, you know, for, mm -hmm. with the social, with the th social things like, you know, gay marriage, stuff like that, they're usually pretty oh, progressive sure. on, but they're ultra economically <laughs> conservative. Like, I don't think that they can see past that capitalism is not the only economic system. You know, I, I, I think some of them think that they are open-minded when it comes to the economic system, but I don't think that they can see an alternative to capitalism, you know, a, a reality dominated by corporations, hierarchy, um, you know, rich and powerful mm -hmm. people that, uh, you know, clearly dominate our society. You know, a handful well, of billionaires have as much wealth as, um, you know, the bottom four billion of us combined. You know, without a progressive tax system, without regulations, those billionaires are going to become even more powerful and dominate our lives even more. So, unfortunately, I, I consider myself an anarchist, but I don't want to get rid of the state. Not anytime mm -hmm. soon, at least. We have to use the powers of the state, which at least in some form are democratic. They listen to people. You know, they have to. They have to get elected. They have to get votes. Try to go down to a corporation. You know, go down to Boeing or General Electric. Try to go down and get a meeting with the board of directors. Ain't going to happen. Corporations are private tyrannies. They do not listen to people whatsoever. They are completely secret. What they do, we will never find out. At least, um, you know, in a democratic society, uh, like the United States, um, you know, at least in theory, uh, although it's a little bit more of an oligarchy than a democracy, at least in theory, like 30 years from now, we're actually going to get some um, declassified um, papers on what our leaders are up to. And I think one of the reasons um, it's 30 years in the future, 
they, you know, they don't want us to, they don't want to be around when they're, when we're looking some, through some of their crimes that they're committing, you know, but you know, corporations, that stuff almost never comes out unless it's in public documents. So at least in theory, a government is in some form uh, receptive to popular pressures. And, you know, maybe eventually, maybe 30 years down the line, uh, we find out what they're doing, you know, but a, co- a corporation, this private tyranny, it's completely secret and uh, it's completely unaccountable. It's this hierarchy. It's this totalitarian. If I could quote Noam Chomsky, which I do often on my podcast, it's a corporation mm-hmm. is, is totalitarian as a structure as human beings have ever created. So if I'm, if I'm given a choice between government and what we have now versus a world dominated by corporations, I'll have to side with the government. But in the long run, I want uh, corporations replaced with democratic institutions like co-ops. And eventually I'd like the uh, arbitrary borders and arbitrary governments to dissolve. But if we if we dissolve the governments now, our lives are going to be a lot like 1984. But instead of being ruled over by governments, it's going to be private tyrannies and corporations. Well, um, two things I'd like to bring up with that. Um, and I'm agreeing with you, mostly. Uh, <laughs> mostly. I'm, um, I'm pretty far out there, pretty far left. Oh, yeah. No, no, it, I don't know. You know, we're going to, one of these days, we're going to have to sit down and compare, like, uh, you know, the political compass, yeah. compass tech, the four quadrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty far to the the lower green quadrant there. Um, so we might be about equal. Um, I'm just always fearful of authority. So I'm, I'm the Right. Uh, no, I understand. Uh, you know, I'm very fearful of the state. I'm very for, fearful of also bureaucracy, too. Yeah, here's here's one thing I'd like to throw out there is that one of the false dichotomies, and there are a lot of them when it comes to political uh, discussion. Uh, one of the massive false dichotomies that you see is state versus private, and if you stop and you think about what the actual definition of state is, it really or government is. It's whatever entity, individual, or organization has the power to, inf- to create and enforce rules. If a private entity, like a corporation, is large enough, it can do that. Therefore, private becomes government, which is kind of what Mussolini was talking about when he said that fascism was the merger of corporate and state. Uh, just take a look at cor- at, at uh, company towns. That's a great example. Uh, if you let pure quote unquote uh, free market go unfettered, you will. And this is where I completely agree with Marxists. Uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between what I believe and what I do, even the, and what they do. Although I don't know that I'd call myself a Marxist. Um, is if you let capitalism and free market evolve, it becomes feudalism. That's specifically what it is. And, and then you, you, it may be private, but it's just as draconian and just as hierarchical and just as punitive. Yeah, isn't there isn't there a term out there? It's technocratic feudalism or technocracy, where we're basically you know you have the people, the rich and powerful, and they put in yeah. place their technocrats to do their you know the the intelligent intelligentsia and actually uh, Gramsci talked about the uh, yeah. 
the cultural hegemony where the ruling class um, keeps people and keeps everyone in their place by dominating, you know, the uh, institutions of ideology, like, you know, the school systems, the corporations, the banks, all that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of, uh, I, I try to blend the terms into things I learned from Chomsky, Gramsci, other anarchists, and kind of into my worldview. And uh, but something else that I think you need to to keep in into account is power is relative. Um, so if you quote unquote erase the state, I don't think you can. I don't, I really don't think you can because it still becomes, you know, whoever's got the more power wins. So you need you need a system that protects the individual. I really think, protects the individual. I think you're invoking some har- or some Hobbes now in kind of, uh, you know, in, in, when you're talking about the system of everyone versus everyone, that sort of thing. And I think fear politics is what um, at least the, the ruling class used to justify their use of force with police and oh, military. Yeah. And I agree. And I think some of my thinking sometimes can be utopianism. But what I would want in the long-term mm. view, probably not in my lifetime, t- probably not in, if I ever have children in their lifetime, but I would want, you know, like a, a, a international uh, state where people work together, an international mm. system, a federal, feder- uh, I think federalism, where there's, there's kind of like smaller kind of governments, but they're, they come together and maybe vote on specific issues, but it's not like some high-powerful high authoritarian-type government, but like, you know, maybe local communities coming together sure, to vote on issues, my, but, you know, not nation states with standing armies, police forces. I want to dismantle the state's ability to carry out violence. And I know that they argue typically for defense, but, you know, yeah. it's usually to kind of maintain their power. That's what I think, at least. Oh, yeah. But believe me, I'm, I'm not in favor of empire whatsoever. Uh, my, my concern is just that look at a, look at a small town. You can have just as much uh, oppression in a small town, a quote-unquote decentralized area. Yeah, I think that's uh, because of wealth inequality. I think that there's, in a you do. society, the reason for violence and crime most of the time is because of inequality, robbery, poverty, desperation. So I think if we could probably, over time, through a welfare state and through improving the living standards of everyone, not just the, the rich and the powerful, I think over time there would be drastically reduction or maybe even getting rid of crime almost altogether. And in that society, again, utopian, I don't think mm. there would be a need for anything outside of maybe community policing where, you know, we have a, someone walking around the community at night, maybe not with a badge or a weapon, but just, you know, kind of walking around, checking things out, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I don't think we need jails. I don't think we need armed policemen, the militarization, again, utopianism in long term. But I, and I hope, you know, kind of like Marx mm. did, I hope these nation states dissolve, you know, just like classless, like a class based society. Like, uh, you know, our, our rigid class divisions here, especially in America, where we have some of the worst wealth equality um, in the industrialized world. It's insane here uh, because we don't have much of a, a welfare system. And because, you know, where everyone's under this religious ideology of the free market will solve all. I think what we need to come together and realize is like, yeah, socialism is, I think, common goods, you know, a value for human rights, public education, public transportation, 
hospitals, that sort of thing. So maybe we should de-emphasize funding for the military-industrial complex and militarized police force, or NASA. I tweeted this out today. NASA is essentially a, um, a scam that funnels taxpayer money to private high-tech industry all under the guise of, hey, we're going to put some clowns on the moon, you know, if we're really going to study uh, the solar system and, and that sort of stuff. We wouldn't be putting human beings on the moon or sending them to Mars. We'd be sending probes and telescopes and, and that sort of thing. It's just kind of a public relations exercise to kind of get people behind it. And, uh, you know, I guess for them to be okay with the tax, the tax dollars going to uh, whatever so-called space exploration, when really it's just funding SpaceX and, you know, the billionaire dick measuring contest that's going on right now. A lot of them well, are getting it, billions of dollars of, of subsidies. So instead of spending taxpayer money on NASA and the billionaire space race, the military industrial complex or paying police to, you know, beat us down and then paying millions of dollars in lawsuits. So we're paying taxes for a militarized police force. And we're also using tax dollars to pay off the victims of, of these crimes. If we could maybe pull our resources and use them more responsibly for you know public works projects again, and, and instead of violence and um, you know again a billionaire space race and corporate welfare to you know the banking industry gets billions and billions of dollars in, in subsidies. I would like to kind of dismantle all of these authoritarian type structures, not just uh, you know the the nation states, but also the Federal Reserve and the banking system. So that's kind of where I am. I, I would like to I like decentralization. I I'm fearful of authority. I'm fearful of these transnational corporations i'm fearful of nation states like the united states was which is the richest and most powerful and certainly the most violent all these sorts sources of injustice in the world that's what i would like to do is to dismantle them and then in the long run i would like kind of um you know societies to be structured around local communities hopefully hopefully loosely affiliated um you know with with you know laws but hopefully minimal i don't think the world is ever made better by more lawyers and more laws but yeah i want a kind of a loosely affiliated international structure where um communities work together for the common good uh getting rid of like private ownership of corporations over the means of production but uh that's kind of where our the debate I was thinking about in my head today, private property. I think humans should have uh, private property, like their homes and that sort of thing. But one of the issues with the anarchists have is, you know, when we have profits and private property, you know, that, that tends to lead to capital accumulation and inequality. So I am in favor of some private property, but in terms of like uh, division of labor, um, you know, productions and like uh, companies and, uh, and like, um, workplaces, that sort of thing. I think those should be publicly owned and split amongst either the local community or the workforce. But I think like private property is fine as long as, you know, there's some limits to it. Like you can't have 15 or 20 houses or private jets and yachts and that sort of thing. But I think as it relates to the means of production, I want public ownership of those as well as public resources. But I think, you know, I think it's fine to have people owning their own houses and that sort of stuff. I think, you know, money, I think in the long run too, I'm in favor of most things, if not everything, if you're like a true communist or an anarcho communist, everything is just free, you know, and how would we decide to spend our day? I mean, well, I think the idea would be to hopefully to have, uh, to get rid of that scarcity, you know, like everything is commoditized in America, including labor. Um, you know, there has to be some 
unemployment. You know, if there's full employment, then employers might ask for more job and, and, and better benefits. Yep. So I get how do you it. feel? Good. How do you feel about a how do you feel about a federal job guarantee? I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think that's a great Good. idea. I think that's Good. a great idea. That's why, in the long view, I would like to get rid of the federal government. But it's probably not in my lifetime. Maybe never. You know. But in the long view, I think it'd be a great thing. But I love the federal jobs guarantee, public works works projects. Um, I love full employment. I think that there there's a dogma within the economic system that there has to be like six percent, seven percent unemployment. So the dirty little secret about capitalism, it's not even very good at putting people to work. No, it's not. Um, definitely not. Um, I, I would argue that uh, some of the things that you need to maximize freedom uh, for individuals, you do need a federal government. Um, by the way, are you familiar with MMT? It's it's interesting stuff. The modern money theory. Yeah, I've read some stuff yes. on MMT. So what they don't account for, though, like I'm, I'm actually doing a solo pod on the banking system and how dirty and corrupt it is. Mm-hmm. I want to get rid of the Federal Reserve. I do like MMT. But basically, it's just saying, like, you know, we can just print as much money up as, and it doesn't matter. But eventually, like, there's, like, $21 trillion or maybe more of unaccounted money right now. I think their thing is, like, interest. Don't worry about the interest. We'll just cancel that that out or something like that. But I think we have to have some checks and measures. Maybe you can define it a little bit better for me. But I, I've read some stuff on MMT. Yeah. I like uh, it, but it's not perfect, of course. I highly recommend um, – and by the way, I, I, I'm, I'm retired finance. Um, so I, I, I was in the belly of the beast, unfortunately. Um, I, I really recommend, uh, Stephanie Kelton's book. I read it. Uh, the, I read it. Yeah. Oh, it's has got some good lectures on YouTube too. I, re- I recommend those. If you haven't heard about modern money theory, MMT, check out, uh, go ahead. Stephanie yeah. Kelton, is that her name? It's, I mean, yeah. Uh, and they, it, just, just to be clear, um, MMT doesn't believe that you can print forever. Um, it's, you can. Uh, the, by the way, the, the the way that you trim it is through taxes, um, but taxes don't fund the government. Um, but taxes, as are, long, taxes, taxes stimulate demand, right? That's the idea. Yes, exactly. Demand exactly. For currency, right? Right. Um, but um, in, you're not going to get inflation and and real pressure on currency until and unless uh, a nation is at nearly full capacity and that's both full and uh, full employment and full use of resources and we're nowhere close to that i'm close now we are nowhere close and i've actually to read that. some stuff chomsky talks about it a lot like unemployment usually those numbers are a lot lower in reality they're a lot higher it doesn't account for people that just kind of look for a job and then gave up you know that sort of thing like working oh, age exactly. people that could still contribute but they're you know no longer looking because they gave up they're, they're hopeless you know one hundred percent. One of the things that really floored me when I really started digging into it is if you look into the unemployment rate, how it's measured, and uh, not to get all wonky on you, but there's uh, there's the U6 and there's the U3. And every I think it's I forget which one that they use. I think it's U3. Um, but point being that the way it's measured completely cuts out people who gave up who, uh, you know, can't find work after a while. Um, they're underutilized. They're working in a job that doesn't use their skills. Yeah, underemployment, so, sure. So it's, it's, it's a right. scam. Yeah. Uh, unemployment, the way we measure unemployment is a complete and total scam. Yeah, we're just trying to make our... And federal, a federal job guarantee would fix that. Sure. Yeah. 
I think that's, I think that's a great idea. I, I want public ownership of banks. Uh, I want them. I don't want so the Federal Reserve. People think like, oh, the U.S. Federal Reserve is you know under the under under the government under uh, the control of the people. It is not. It's a privately owned mm-hmm. bank. Um, it's for profit. Um, it's owned by the rich and powerful. Some of the original um, banks. Uh, it was modeled after the Bank of England. I think that the Bank of England was one of the causes of the Revolutionary War. Uh, it didn't take too long for the money changers in Europe to get back in control of the U.S. economy. They actually tried to sabotage the Civil War uh, so that they could, because uh, I guess Lincoln had uh, started a debt-free currency, the greenbacks, um, but they, they got their teeth back into our economy. They were actually funding the South. They were trying to divide and conquer America. So it's pretty seedy, but basically, you know, the... It's a dirty, dirty history. If you want to look back to the the history of the Federal Reserve and these central banks, which are always deceptively named, they're always named like the Bank of England or the United, the the, the first Bank of the United States, that sort of thing, where it sounds like it's uh, publicly uh, under public control, but it's not. It's under private control, and it was also rumored that uh, the Rothschilds were some of the original investors in the scheme here. Uh, and the fact that the, the U.S. Federal Reserve, I think it's been tried like three different times, including the most recent. This might be the fourth one. Uh, they, they were always a massive failure. One of the reasons that they um, were started was to prevent bank runs. You know, what happens is fractional uh, fractional reserve sure. lending where yeah. you, know, you have like a 10 percent in the vault, uh, but you can lend out, you know, 100 percent of investment or whatever you can let, let you, you only need like 10 percent in the bank to, for, to cover your investments so basically they created a system it would it would be an international failure or a national failure if everyone went to the banks and said give me your money so they're like the reason they started the, this banking system is because it was is to prevent bank runs except they're using the exact same method this fractional reserve lending on a larger scale so i'm really doing a lot of research on it i've been talking about it on several podcasts but it's very very dirty it's very very seedy these money managers their corporations are privately owned um i think that I, again i have problems with corporations so i I would like maybe smaller community banks that actually loan to the local community instead of trying to, um, you know, make money in investment banking schemes and, you know, magic tricks with money and international money markets, all that sort of thing. Uh, I would love a system where, you know, we got rid of these powerful centralized banks that are too big to fail and made them much smaller. So, I mean, that's kind of the way I look at politics. I try to simplify things. I would like banks on a local community level. Uh, I would like the workplaces organized, not these giant transnationals with these hierarchies and these boards of directors and these CEOs. And uh, I would like government too. I would like maybe maybe some you know loosely affiliated states come together uh, to to vote on issues at times. But for the most part, you know, I want these local communities to be able to kind of have autonomy and the ability to self govern themselves. And I'm also very into um, you know working class representation, real working class representation. You know, where working people. Um, you know, kind of rotate through responsibilities and, you know, maybe you're involved in government one year, but not the next. And, you know, it's just kind of the duty of the citizen in the local community to do that. It's 
not just uh, bought and sold by you know a rich and powerful member of the local community that doesn't have five seconds to listen to you what, what your grievances are. It only has uh, he or she only has the time if you you know you're contributing to their campaign. So I mean, getting money out of politics, we're just really going all over the place here. But yeah, I think the central banking system, the money in politics, I think that uh, the capitalist system, these are all things that kind of came into being uh, after the inception of the United States and things have just been getting worse. And uh, one of my favorite uh, classical liberal thinkers, Thomas Jefferson, had mentioned uh, that the, the, the revolution would be a failure um, if uh, the country was taken over by uh, moneyed in corporations. And that's kind of you know what happened. So uh, some of these uh, founding fathers were very uh, lucid to the idea, lucid to the idea that uh, you know this this corporate way of um, power and control was slowly infiltrating and taking over the country. And uh, I think the founding fathers—not that we should care much what they have to say or think—you uh, know, I don't, I, I couldn't care much about the Constitution. It was written by a cold, dead hand. That's why I'm an, an anarchist. You know, I care about more about problems going on here today, but I, I don't think that they could have imagined, you know, the, the money in politics today, the powerful transnational uh, corporations, all the things that, you know, kind of came into being that was only starting, you know, in the, in the late 1700s. And I, I, I think that's what the libertarians are in favor of even more of, you know, that corporate domination and control over society. I, I, I would say, I mean, there's a, ton of things that I wouldn't agree with um, Thomas Jefferson on. The one thing that I thought was interesting that not everybody knows he suggested was that every generation has to be able to re-ratify the Constitution. A revolution every generation. He was all about it every 15 yeah. years. And that that almost, that makes sense. That makes sense that it, it should have to be re reauthorized. I mean, so, there's a main thing you could say against Thomas Jefferson, but that one was pretty good. I, I think as, as a political theorist, he had a lot of good stuff to say. Uh, in terms of his slaves and, you know, owning human beings and having affairs with them, yeah, his personal life was in shambles for sure. But his political thinking, I, I like a lot of the stuff that he had to say. Uh, I, I consider myself, uh, you know, I guess there was the, the Federalists and uh, I guess there was the, the Jeffersonians or the uh, uh, agrarian type um, you know, structure of society, but I, 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 in terms of the Federalists and this very, you know, I guess Alexander Hamilton and some of the presidents that came after Washington, they were in favor of this strong president and this strong federal government, and he was always wary of that, and that's kind of where I am. I'm kind of this leftist, left of authority, always questioning authority. I'd, I'd much rather have a decentralized power structure than a highly powerful centralized state. Or a highly powerful, you know, corporation that are running the affairs. As John Dewey might say, politics is the shadow cast on society by big business. Well, but for the record, I would say that um, my favorite uh, founding father, so to speak, was Thomas Paine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was great. He was great. I like Ben Franklin, too. He was an Enlightenment thinker. Do you have anything to say about way, Thomas Paine? Well, Thomas Paine, you know, he was in favor of a UBI. Nice. Um, I mean, some of these ideas are just recycled. You know, these, these progressive yeah, ideas it's amazing. that are things that they're new you know, stuff. These are, these are things that are considered, like, radical now that they were talking about all that, that long ago. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you're going to talk about <laughs> – I mean, to, to be amusing, if you're going to talk about uh, Ben Franklin, you know he was a nudist, right? I did not. 
No, I didn't. He was. <laughs> he was a nudist, was he? I didn't he was know. He's a that. nudist. Interesting. Yeah, and he had quite a, a body sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, he did. I, I I read some stuff on him. I've read his biography, his autobiography. Uh, he was also very much in favor of like um, the, the lightning rod and all of his inventions. He he was all in favor of, um, I guess, having public uh, knowledge of his inventions. He didn't want to um, he didn't want to put like patents on his inventions and that sort of thing. Uh, when he would discover mm. something, you know, kind of open sourcing, like he wanted to share information. Unfortunately, you know, in this day and age, that's like anti-capitalist. You know, how are you going to make money on this invention? Why would people invent anything if you can't make money on it? Well, you know, Thomas well, Jefferson or Thomas uh, Ben Franklin, excuse me, he was you know one of the founding fathers, a great Enlightenment thinker. Uh, he had all kinds of great inventions, and he wanted to um, you know, like for example, the library, the fire department. I think those are all at least in America. The uh, hospital. I think he founded maybe the first hospital, uh, University of Pennsylvania. All these public works projects in Philadelphia. He was behind them, so I think he was uh, very much a socialist, at least a socialist thinker. Um, and these ideas might sound progressive today. I, I think I've tweeted this before. If uh, if we came up with the idea of libraries now, I think the Republicans would call it a um, communist scam, you know? I think they still would. <laughs> Let, let's talk about some of your – so we went all over the place uh, throughout the yeah. political compass tonight. Let's talk about the – you got some stories here. Um, you like to challenge um, some of the politicians – uh, I think you have some stories here with uh, Richie Torres. Uh, you also have a, an RFK story. So maybe talk about maybe some of your goings-on in the Bronx and, you know, your political uh, activism and uh, maybe your run-ins with some of these political figures. Oh, sure. I definitely want to hear your RFK story and maybe refresh me on uh, Richie Torres and what's uh, what that character is all about. Oh, absolutely. And um, also Hakeem Jeffries. Okay. Let's hear him. Okay. Um, I think we want to start with uh, RFK. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Definitely. He's been uh, getting a lot of uh, public attention, I guess, of late. I don't think he has a serious uh, campaign uh, to win the presidency, but uh, I guess he's at least in the uh, the public domain and has some public awareness of uh, whatever his uh, baloney campaign's all about. Well, um, I think he might have actually had a chance until he decided that he was going to uh, – turn it into an I love Israel campaign, uh, frankly. Um, and uh, back in, I think it was August, he, uh, RFK has fallen in with a particularly corrupt individual. His name is Rabbi Shmuley, Shmuley Botich, and who is, he's got quite a checkered career, Shmuley Botich does. Uh, he considers himself, quote unquote, the uh, America's rabbi. By the way, before all of this, uh, anyone who knows me knows I'm Jewish. <laughs> so, and you're also uh, part of the, the JVP, Jewish Voices for Peace, right? Yes, Jewish Voice for Peace, and also, if not now, which is another Jewish group. Okay, so Botich paints himself as quote unquote America's rabbi. He's been involved with Michael Jackson. Uh, he's like a celebrity hugger. Um, his family was involved, was, was alleged to have been involved with arms trafficking. Uh, he now sells sex toys with his, his daughter. I'm not kidding you. Uh, and he is a huge, huge Israeli Zionist fan. So RFK decided that he was Rabbi Bochich's 
best friend. And they put together what was called the Championing Israel event at Bo Teach's uh, organization, which is known as World Values Network, WVN. So a group of us went, and it was immediately, RFK sat down, was amazingly passive in his seat. It was like he wasn't even trying. And Bo Teach was running around and being Mr. Charismatic on the stage, talking about how wonderful Israel is and how like the, everyone else is a terrorist and how everything that they do is justified. A few of my friends got pulled out because they stood up and contradicted him. But eventually it came to the Q&A. And after one friend, uh, my first friend, who, by the way, is the founder of the Bronx Anti-War Coalition, his name is Richard Marino, uh, stood up and asked about inspecting Israel's illegal nuclear facilities. Because they have never even admitted to having nukes, even though we all know that they do. And uh, RFK was like, oh, no, 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 no. I trust them. They're, they're a democracy. On the other hand, of course, Iran, we're going to insist on these different rules. Fine. So my turn was next. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Shireen Abu Akla case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Shireen Abu Akla was basically like the Barbara Walters of um, Palestinian journalism. She was loved. Uh, and she was in, I believe, the West Bank. And she was she was looking, she was uh, doing a report and was suddenly killed. At first, Israel claimed that it was a, a Palestinian sniper. Of course, she was a journalist and her team was videotaping. So it was proof that there was no Palestinian journalist in the area whatsoever. Uh, there was an Israeli van down the block which after a while, Israel said, oh, yeah, well, we accidentally shot her. Shireen was wearing a helmet and body armor. There was like a millimeter of space between those two spots where she could be shot. So it was obviously targeted. And when people tried to pull her out of there, they shot. They kept shooting at them. So... When it was my turn to speak, I got up and I said, hey, you know, uh, Bobby or Robert, uh, are you willing to call for the extradition of the soldier who killed Shireen? She was not only a Palestinian journalist, she was also a U.S. citizen. And also, are you willing to sit down with JVP and talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? because we have a very different view that Boteach does. Boteach jumped down my throat. He tried to scream blood libel, which, by the way, is an incredible insult to anyone who's Jewish. He tried to claim that it was an accident, which is completely debunkable. And basically, he controlled the entire conversation, and RFK was amazingly passive. It's like he wasn't willing to contradict a single thing this guy said. And when he was done, he simply said, well, you know, 
know. I don't know what the rules are. I'll have to think about it. And nothing ever happened. That tells me that there's dynamics going on that we don't know. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, and I'm not saying that it's confirmed, but RFK was a passenger on Epstein's plane. Repeatedly. He claims he was with his kids and his family. However, it's pretty well known that Epstein was a Mossad operation. The extent to which RFK is extremely compliant to absolutely everything uh, that Israel has to say says to me that something is going on that we need to talk about. So that was my one experience. (laughs) By the way, that's all on video. You can find it on social media. Mint Press covered it. It was originally filmed by the absolutely wonderful uh, Indie News Network, INN. I'm actually going to have a representative on tomorrow, Indy, I guess he goes by. I'm going to have him on tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, that is Mm. uh, definitely a voice of the left uh, in this highly corporate media landscape where elites control the entire information system. You know, it's it's good to Mm -hmm. get some uh, different points of view out there and ask these people, uh, especially, you know, those in power or those around power, you know, to, to speak for some of these injustices that have been uh, carried out throughout the world and, uh, you know, kind of watch them squirm a little bit. So I think that's is a, a good thing. You had something to say about uh, Richie Torres too. Is there anyone else uh, you want to mention here? Oh. In your, uh, in your, anyone else in your crosshairs? Yeah. <laughs> on my crosshairs. Well, I'll, I'll do uh, Hakeem Jeffries briefly and then we'll touch on Richie Torres with, okay. for, for the fi- finale. All right. Uh, Akeem Jeffries was, I'm not quite sure what the day was, but it was 2023. Um, it was right after the Nord Stream bombing. Uh, I was at a, an event where Hakeem was speaking. The person I was with, I don't know if you're familiar with him. His name is Jose Vega. Uh, he's actually involved with uh, the Schiller Institute. A really great guy, personally. Love him to pieces. He is, he's brave, he speaks the truth, he gets out there. Um, and he confronted Hakeem on the Nord Stream bombing. And Hakeem, Hakeem and the security guards dragged him out of the room. Uh, I had prepared comments. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is an amazing APAC show. Massively. There was a point at which he actually called um, Jerusalem the sixth borough. And as a Jewish person who believes in human rights and thinks that we need to spend at home, not for to foreign governments, I wanted to speak to him. They were so spooked that Jose had spoke, had shook the boat that they actually pulled the mic away from me. And Hakeem Jeffries, who is supposedly this this icon, sat there on stage, knew that I was being silenced, and did nothing whatsoever. So that's your Democratic Party for you. And he's the minority speaker of the House now, by the way. Now we come to Richie Torres. 
Richie Torres is my representative in the Bronx. My particular district is one of the poorest in the U.S. I believe, uh, I could be wrong on the exact number, but I believe our me- our median income, and this is in New York where you have to spend a lot of money, is 31000 Um, And he is, someone did a measurement of how often he tweets about Israel. And he tweets about Israel 300 times more than he does about poverty in our district. Not only that, but he's also he also takes quite a bit from APAC. If you look at Open Secrets, which by the way is an absolutely wonderful resource, uh, or opensecrets.org, you'll find that in his career, he has taken over 500,000, that's half a million, from APAC and APAC affiliated sources. That includes, you know, members of APAC and, you know, friends of APAC and what have you. We have repeatedly, different uh, constituents in our district have repeatedly done protests in front of his office and just simply asked him to come to us and talk because he te- he always says he's speaking for for Jewish people. He always says, "Oh, I'm standing against uh, anti-Semitism." But when we, and we're, t- I'm talking Jews. You know, you also Palestinians. We're talking secular Jews. We're talking Orthodox Jews, like for instance, Rabbi Weiss, who is huge in the Orthodox community. Go to his doorstep. Richie Torres jumps onto Twitter, blocks his constituents and says that we're extremists and that he's worried that we're going to be violent, and he runs away. Uh, To top it off, uh, about maybe, I'd say it was about three weeks ago, a group of us, because he was so hard to find that we could not go to him, he had a quote-unquote bipartisanship uh, seminar over in the 92nd Street Y with Mike Lawler, who's a big mega dude, um, about normalizing trade with Israel and the Abraham Accords. And a group of us who are his constituents and Lawler's constituents stood up to talk to him. Not only did the crowd get basically violent, they were screaming, we were grabbed by security, but Torres just sat there and joked while his Jewish, a lot of us were Jewish, a lot of us were people of color, other people in the group were LBTQIA community, all of which he claims to to represent because he checks all the ID poll boxes, were manhandled, pulled out of the, 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 uh, the auditorium, And, you know, a few of us pushed down the stairs. And his response on social media was, oh, my gosh, look at the bullies. They tried to disrupt us. Has he come to any of us? No. This guy is, uh, to use the vernacular, a complete Shonda. He does not represent the Bronx. He does not represent Judaism. He doesn't give a damn about the Bronx, 
whatsoever. All he cares about is his pocketbook. So I would very much love, and I, I put out the, the, the demand that he sit down with JVP, that he sit down with, if not now, and he actually talked to us. Because if he actually respected Judaism, he would listen to someone other than APEC. But he will not. What about, uh, is there any other, so I'll give you the mic here the last few minutes. I really appreciate your time. I would really appreciate your perspective here. Any other projects you're working on? Any other events? Any other writings? Anything you'd like to plug? And uh, maybe where can people find you if they like this discussion tonight and want to connect? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, uh, things are always going on. Um, unfortunately, the uh, genocide in Gaza is continuing, and that can change on a daily basis. Um, you would definitely, oh, yes, um, something that I would like to bring up is something that's still ongoing that started back in November, is uh, myself and the rest of the Bronx Anti-War Coalition put together a petition to restore historic Palestine. Uh, What that basically means is that does not mean throwing the Jews out. What that means is implementing a single state, arresting the heck out of the the Netanyahu regime, which is completely justified, uh, allowing completely criminal regime. And by that, I mean him, I mean his uh, cabinet, I mean, the top IOF and IDF command, just the way we did in Nuremberg. We didn't leave the, the, the German top command in place. We took care of it. And this is the exact same principle. So once you do that, single state, you give Palestinians right of, and I'm talking worldwide, you give Palestinian refugees right of return, which, by the way, is guaranteed by the UN in Resolution 194, which was which was signed off shortly after the creation of Israel. That's the dec- uh, UN Declaration of Human Rights, I believe, correct? Uh, I believe it, it might have been separate. Okay. But but it, it's not, it's, it's an adjunct. Um, but uh, right of return and uh, some, at least some land back and equal citizenship. How anyone could possibly be against equal citizenship the same way that we had, we, they had to do, uh, you know, uh, reconciliation in South and uh, apartheid South Africa. That's what you need for Israel. Uh, the anti-war coalition, we have a petition which has gone to the UN, has gone to several missions, and you can actually find it, you can sign it, and you can, you can forward it to various people. And that's a biggie for us. Because ceasefire ain't going to be enough. Yeah, that's my, that's my, what I tweeted a while ago. I didn't, I didn't realize it was going to go this long, but I, I uh, tweeted that uh, my prediction was like Israel would completely destroy uh, the Gaza Strip and leave nothing left 
and then that's when they would call for ceasefire. Okay, let's uh, let's end this violence, you know. And it uh, it's yeah. actually gotten worse. I didn't think it was. I thought it would be like thirty days, a month or so, but uh, it's getting worse. And I can't believe you know it's still going on. Uh, the world is watching. Uh, and yeah, at this point, I mean, it's just it's not even about ceasefire or politics or it's just like human dignity. Like this, enough is enough. This is getting ridiculous, you know. It is. By, by the way, um, I know we're running out of time, but uh, by the way, are you familiar with the Ben-Gurion Canal? Uh, is that the one? Yeah, is that there? They're, I, I had so um, I had someone talk about it. I'm not familiar with it, but I had it's it's like an infrastructure project, right? The infra, uh, that uh, Israel is planning. And I know that they found some five hundred billion dollar offshore mm-hmm. natural gas deposit. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, incentives for this uh you know, it's not a war by any means. It's genocide. They the land is valuable to Israel. It's a land war. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a with the Ben Gurion Canal. Not only did they find, as you pointed out, they found all that oil. <laughs> they want the oil, but also, and the Ben Gurion Canal has been been planned since like uh, the sixties, which they wanted to have an alternative to the Suez Canal, which is a massive trade route. And you see what's happening with the Houthis now. You know, so it's like, oh, we got to have something else. And the thing is, it, 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 the, the planned canal runs right through Gaza. It's a land grab. Just a coincidence. And they don't care how many people they kill. Just a coincidence. It runs right through Yeah, Gaza. just a coincidence, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we got to do this again. Let's stay in touch. Anything else you want to plug? Anything else you want to say? Uh, that's, uh, that's it. But definitely uh, reach out to uh, the Bronx Anti-War uh, Coalition about the petition and uh, I can be found on Gaijin girl 2004 on Twitter. All right. It was a pleasure. Gaijin girl. Uh, we got to stay in contact. Let's do this again in a couple months. Sounds good. Thanks okay. So thank you for your so time. Have a great night. Okay. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Necessary illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Gajin Girl, a Bronx leftist activist and writer, for a great discussion on politics and philosophy. Shout out to Drowning Dog and Malatesta for the music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.
here. Ah! Who are you when there's no one looking? Riddles and fictions, forced respect and contradictions, pseudo signs and a whole lot of ass. Life comes fast, tricks for the trade. Terrorize the people, throw them in a cage. Straw men hate, necessary to keep the face, keep the pace. Keep us with our hands up, democracy. The rich are leading the propaganda, they kicking that sand up, can't see. Got us fucked up, but we gotta get paid. Avoid an escape. Hope through a fantasy, snapped out of luck. And I slapped on a filter, still stay rough. Cause it's late in the cave. Tricking my recipe, illusion, get the best of me. Call it necessity. Necessary illusions, they play on my mind. Causing confusion, I seek in your fun. A necessary illusion, I smoke in that meal. That causing confusion, look Fiction